Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Big Jonah Berger. We did his book, Contagious, How to Build Word of Mouth in the Digital Age. And we also touched a, a little bit on his other book, Invisible Influence. Yes, so we delved a little bit deeper with a few very interesting stories, particularly around social currency. So uh, he's got some great stories. He's great, Jonah. Jonah Vark. Jo- <laughs> Jonah Berger. Jonah Berger. Yeah. <laughs> If you're ever in New York City uh, and you're walking around on the Lower East Side, uh, you've been around all day, you've been walking, seeing all the sites, the, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, the Empire State Building, all that sort of thing. Your stomach is rumbling. You got to get a bite to eat. When you notice a big hot dog shaped sign uh, out in front of a restaurant with the words, I think it's something like eat me uh, written on them, it would look like mustard. So you, you walk down a flight of stairs into this restaurant called Criff Dogs. If you like hot dogs, you'd be in heaven. Criff Dogs has basically every hot dog you can imagine. I think they have 25-odd hot dogs. They have a good morning hot dog with bacon, eggs, and cheese. They have a hot dog between onion and pineapple. Um, but once you finish your hot dog, whichever one you picked, if you look over in the corner, there's actually a phone booth, uh, one of those old things that Clark Kent might jump into to change into Superman. And if you slide open the door and walk inside, uh, there's something you probably haven't seen even longer, uh, which is a rotary dial phone. Uh, maybe you had one at your grandma's or your mom's house, one of those things you stick your finger and you go around in a circle. So just for fun, stick your finger and say the number three, go around <laughs> in a circle and, and hold the receiver up to your ear. And it turns out that the phone will actually ring. It goes ring, ring, and, and then somebody will pick up the other line and they'll ask you whether you have a reservation. Now, the first time I heard this story, I was like, hold on, what, a, a reservation? I'm in a, a phone booth inside of a hot dog restaurant. What could I, what could I possibly have a reservation for? But if you're lucky and they happen to have space or a friend of yours happen to make a reservation, the back of that phone booth will open and you'll be led into a secret bar called Please Don't Tell. Now, Please Don't Tell has violated a number of traditional laws of marketing, traditional laws of communication. There's no sign in the street. There's no sign inside the restaurant. They've done everything they can basically to make themselves difficult to find. And yet every day they're full. 3 p.m., phone lines open up. By 3.30, all the seats are gone. Uh, people frantically redial again and again trying to get through. I, I finally got it on like a Tuesday night, probably two weeks after calling. Not, not the most popular time. And so one question is, what did they do right? It's not lack of competition, right? Um, most people know New York. There's turns out there's more than one uh, bar in New York. There's actually quite a couple of uh, <laughs> a couple few bars in New York City. So what did they do right? And what they did, interestingly, is they made themselves a secret. So if you think about the last time someone told you a secret, they told you something and they told you not to tell anybody else, what's one of the first things you probably did with that information? And if you're like most people, you probably told someone because <laughs> yeah. having access to information that not everyone else knows makes you look smart and makes you look in the know. It gives you what, what I'll call social currency, right? Just like the car we drive and just like the clothes we wear, the things we talk about and the things we share affect how other people see us. And so one way to get more word of mouth, whether it be for a product, a service, an idea, um, one way to get something to catch on is not to make ourselves look good, but to make other people look good by talking about it. The more we can make people feel special, smart, like insiders in the know, the more likely they'll be to share, not because they like us, but because they want to look good to their friends and peers. But to do that, we come along for the ride. Mm. Fantastic. I love it. And I love that uh, it's a different way of thinking about it that until reading this book, I hadn't sort of thought of that the things that people share, obviously everybody talks and everybody loves to talk, but the things that they're sharing is that the things that make them look good to others, obviously that sense of social currency. Yeah, that's certainly at least one of the things. And, and you know, I, I work with a lot of uh, companies and organizations, and 
they usually say something along the lines of, oh, yeah, word of mouth. You have to pay people for that, right? Like you have to <laughs> give a referral fee to, to get people to talk. And, and referral fees certainly in the short term boost the number of referrals that you get. Anytime you pay people, at least if you pay them enough money, they'll do something. But in the long term, it decreases people's interest in referring for free, and you have to keep paying them to keep them doing it. And so it doesn't have very high return on investment. Mm. But if you think about it, you know, think about a product or a service you love. Think about a vacation destination you like, a restaurant you enjoy. You don't talk about those things because someone's paying you to talk about them. You talk about them because you like them, because talking about them makes you look good or a number of other motivations. And, and that's really what Contagious is all about, right? Understanding the psychological motivations, not just the economic or the monetary motivations, but the psychological motivations that drive people to talk and, and drive them to share and help us understand how we can use those motivations to get people to talk about our stuff and it's also that depends who we're talking to will alter i guess what we say and how, how we tell it um, can you tell us a story about the the cockroach study because i thought that was hilarious <laughs> yeah so uh th this is a fun one actually an old old friend of mine did where they, they were kind of interested in in whether people tell a story exactly how it happened or people tell a story <laughs> slightly differently than <laughs> than how it happened and so uh they actually concocted up this crazy sort of uh laboratory experiment where they brought people into a, a room that was like a cooking room and they said they were there for a cooking class and, and they were going to do different things in the cooking class and as part of the class they had to get all these different ingredients and set them up and you know people are going through these various steps you can imagine yourself you know being in a cooking class and at, at one point you know to go to the fridge you get out one ingredient you go to the fridge you get out another ingredient um and then eventually you go to the fridge and you're supposed to get the lettuce or something along those lines and and you pick them up and there are cockroaches uh, in the fridge um and they're interested to say okay well hey you saw some cockroaches and there are indeed cockroaches in the fridge how many cockroaches though do you tell people that you saw Right? They, they put a certain number in there, but they look at what people say that, that, that they saw. And I think this is something all of us have seen all the time, not, not our friends talking about stories about numbers of cockroaches. But um, when we tell stories, when our friends tell stories, we don't just tell the story as, as it happened. We often fall prey to what's called the extremity bias. Right? We tell stories in ways that make them seem more engaging. If the flight was late, it wasn't just a couple minutes late. It was a long time late. If they lost our bags, they never got there. If something good uh, you know the dinner was amazing everybody loved it my vacation was perfect all these things happened you know um and, and so you you talk about things in an extreme way if it's supposed to be good it's not just good it's great if you talk about things in a bad way it's not just uh, it's terrible um and the idea is that by sharing these extreme stories it kind of makes us look better and it has a bigger uh, emotional impact and so we don't always tell things just about how they happened sometimes we tell them in a way to often tell them in a way to make them more engaging to the listener yeah, 100%. We always uh, add a little bit of salt and pepper and add so much to stories. But at the same time, we probably don't consider ourselves a liars, even though, <laughs> even though it's not exactly true, right? And what's interesting about that, right, is, is the question is, do we remember, right? Um, it, particularly if you don't remember how many there were, you're not actually lying. You're just sort of reconstructing that story. But But I think we all recognize that, you know, People are going to be more engaged with what we're talking about if it's a better story. I think the challenge we have in today's day and age with social media and all these other things online is everyone is trying to one-up everyone else's stories, right? So, um, you know, you go to a nice vacation, someone else goes to a better vacation. So you want to go on an even better vacation. There's, you have so much information you can see. There's always someone who's doing what you did or something better that it creates this one-upmanship that I think can be really negative uh, for our own well-being, right? There's a lot of nice research that shows 
that social media can actually lead us to be depressed and lonely and feel like our own lives are worse by comparison because people don't just post whatever happens to them. They post the more extreme stuff, the more extreme positive stuff and the extreme negative stuff. But it makes it look like everyone's life is more exciting than ours is, and we may be disappointed as a result. This makes a lot of sense in terms of you know really cool product like the secret the secret bar behind the back of the the phone booth that you that you have to get in at the right time. That's uh, amazing. But what about some boring products that you might think, oh, this is not something that's worth talking about? How can we make a boring product more contagious? You know, it's, it's funny, and this is, an, this is an old example, but I'll start with a new example, and I'll give you an old version. Um, I was doing a speaking event recently, and I went to the event, and they had water like they usually do, but it was water in a box. So imagine the milk cartons you might have drank growing up at school or something along those lines. It's like that, but water, and it's taller. And I had never seen water in a box before. So I was like, why is the water in a box? What is this with this boxed water? And I told a number of other people about it because I had never seen anything like it. Now, let me tell you, that's water in a box. Neither of the things by themselves are particularly remarkable and have a lot of social currency, but um, together, you've never seen water in a box before. It makes it a a bit more engaging. And um, I use this other example in class. It's an old one, but remember what ketchup used to be like, right? Remember when you used to ketchup, used to get the Heinz bottle. It was made of glass. It was very heavy. It was sort of beautiful, but it took a long time to get ketchup out. You had to smack the bottom and smack the bottom and smack the bottom. So what did they do eventually? They came out with a plastic container where they flipped it upside down. So it's actually when you take it out of your fridge, the bottom opens up right and and ketchup squeezed right Mm. out. Now, today we've seen that before and so it's not novel. But the first time that happened, right, people talked about it because it was interesting. It was different. Um, It's a ketchup bottle. It's not the most exciting thing in the world. They're selling ketchup and they're just all they're doing is changing the packaging. But by making it feel remarkable, by making it surprising, novel or interesting in some way, shape or form, they got people to talk and, and got people to share. And so, you know, to me, the question is not. Um, is something born remarkable or not? I agree. You know, a bar hidden inside a hot dog restaurant is, is pretty cool. But we can apply the same principles, whether we're trying to get people to talk about water and ketchup or, you know, a political initiative or boring things like, you know, dishwashers and blenders and socks, right? Uh, as long as we find that inner remarkability, we can get people to talk and, and get them to share. Nice. I've got a I've got a similar sort of story of last weekend I was at a bar and I got a, a can of beer. I normally, normally hate canned beer. But this one was very remarkable, very different in that it wasn't just your standard where you pull the tab and a little tiny circle opens. You, the whole top uh, pulled off the top of the beer, leaving like a, a wide open cup as opposed to just a tiny little hole like every other can. So I thought that was uh, huh. something completely different and I've told a hell of a lot of people since then just <laughs> yeah. because of something completely different. Yeah, and, and what I think is interesting about that is, is that completely different from anything we've ever seen before? No, no. but it, it sort of was different than our expectations, mm. right? And anytime something is unexpected, it violates our expectations, even if it's a domain that's not very exciting, we're more likely to, to talk about it. And so the question, you know, if you're trying to get the word out about your thing is how can you violate expectations in a good way, even if the domain is not one that might naturally seem remarkable? Mm. Another one of the, uh, the the things you talk about in your book, which we really like, is the idea of triggers. And uh, the KitKat Corporation used this in a really good way uh, not not too long ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the how KitKats used the triggers to really revamp up the KitKat uptake? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell them maybe the KitKat story, and then I'll talk a little about the science behind it. So. Uh, yeah, many people are familiar with KitKat. They're the candy bars that are filled with chewy wafers. Um, uh, at least in the United States, they're very popular around Halloween. Um, 
and they sell pretty well, but a few years ago they weren't doing it as well. People still liked the candy. If you asked them how much do you like the candy, they would have said, I, I like the candy just fine, um, but they weren't buying it. And so Kit Kat was trying to figure out, the maker of Kit Kat was trying to figure out, what do we do about this? You know, Usually we think about advertising or you know marketing communications as changing people's attitudes, but here it didn't seem like attitudes were the problem. What, what was the problem? And so they ended up coming out with this campaign called Kit Kat and Coffee, a break's best friend. Um, where they tried to link the two together. So they'd have a, a number of things where I would say, you know, have a coffee break, have a Kit Kat. Thinking about coffee, think about Kit Kat. Coffee and Kit Kat, Kit Kat and coffee, best friends forever. <laughs> um, and what it did was something really interesting, right? Now, when people went to get coffee, they were more likely to think about Kit Kat. It didn't change how much they liked Kit Kat. It changed how often they thought about Kit Kat. But it did it, it, did it in a really interesting way. We think about advertising sometimes as reminding us to buy a product or service. So, you know, why do we see so many ads for cars or insurance? Because they think about reminding us the brand will make us purchase it. And indeed, you know, 70% of purchases is consideration. If you're thinking about something, you're much more likely to buy it. But doing that through ads is really expensive, right? If we have to remind someone every time that we exist by using paid media, it's, it's pretty expensive. What KitKat did that was just super cool is they used the environment as a reminder, Rather than having to pay to show people that reminder, they linked themselves to something in the environment, and everything that a thing in the environment came up, it reminded them of the product or service. And, and that's what's called a trigger, right? It's a, a reminder in the environment, something that triggers us to think about something that isn't necessarily there. So at least in the U.S., for example, if someone said peanut butter and, their friend might fill in the word jelly, or if someone said rum and, they might fail in the word Coke. Um, these things are associated in, in people's minds. You know, People think milk and cookies. If I, I'm going to go watch a movie, I eat popcorn. And some of these things are culturally dependent, so they may not all – you may not agree with all of them uh, for, for in, in your own lives. But uh, at least in the U.S., those are some associations. And, and what's neat about that is if we see one of those things in the wild, it reminds us of the other one. Even if that other thing isn't there, it acts like a sort of a natural environmental reminder or environmental ad to make us think about that thing. And that's exactly what happened with Kit Kat, right? Lots of people drink coffee. They drink it often. And so now when they drank coffee, they were more likely to think about Kit Kat before. They were more likely to buy it. And, and then sales went up by about, uh, about $50 million, which is pretty good for the amount that's they spent nuts. on the campaign. Um, and so again, they didn't change how much people liked the brand, right? People still liked it the same amount. They just changed whether people thought about it or not. Fantastic. I need to build in a trigger for my, myself because about two months ago, Australia outlawed um, plastic bags at supermarkets. They sort of phased them out and now they're completely gone altogether. So you need to bring your own bags. And I, the only time I remember that I need to bring my own bag is when, when I get to the checkout with, a, with an armful of, of stuff. Um, how can I sort of build in some kind of trigger earlier to make me remember to bring that, that reusable bag before I get into the supermarket? Uh, I, I love your example. And, and to me, reusable grocery bags are, are, are my favorite example of, of triggers. And what's so funny about bags is if you're like most people like you, right, we mean to get bring our bags. We want to bring our bags. We go to the store. We do all our shopping. We get to the checkout line. We go, oh, God, I forgot my bags. <laughs> and you're not going to go back home to get your bags to come back to the store, right? There's a reminder there, but it's kind of too late. It's like if we want to remind people of our product and they only think about it once they've already purchased from the competitor. It's not just frequency of, of being reminded. It's not just more times is better than less. It's when do we want people to think about us, right? When is the right time, whether it's time of day, day of week, something in the environment is happening. 
when is the right time to come to mind? For reusable bags, for example, it's really important that people think about me before, if, I'm, if I want people to remember bags, before they leave the house. Because mm-hmm. if they don't think about it before they leave the house, they're not going to take their bags with them. right? And so it's not just are they thinking about us, but at the right time. In, in my own house, for example, you know, whenever I'm done using the bags, I put them at the bottom of the sto- stairs to go out to the car, to go in the trunk, so that next time I get to the store, they're already there. And so mm-hmm. I take that shortcut to make sure the environment reminds me of what to do. And and that's the same idea more broadly, right? Whether we're trying to get something to catch on or whether we're just trying to change behavior, whether that be our own behaviors or others, triggers are a great way to do that. If we think about habits, for example, you know, uh, you might have a habit uh, that you're trying to get rid of. Maybe you're trying to eat healthier. Maybe you're trying to exercise more or some other, other habit. Triggers often kick off the habit loop. Right? There's uh, one thing in the environment that you see or hear or smell, and that thing reminds you to do something else. And so don't just want to do something. Right, Make sure you use the environment as a reminder to help you actually do that thing. So all your ideas in, in the book, Contagious, Jonah, they, they seem like if, you do, if the marketer does one, does X, then the customer is always going to do Y. Or if you share an idea, it's almost like we're robots. And if you press a button, we're going to do certain things that... Now, is that actually how we we live in everyday day life? We're just robots. You press a button, and we do we react based on what the environment uh, does to us. Yeah, so that, that's a, a deeply philosophical question, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to do my best to answer it. Um, and what I think a good way to think about it is uh, these things, on average, are true. So um, a good way to think about it is if, if the weather says it's going to rain today, there's a 75% chance it's going to rain today. Does it rain every single day? No, but it rains more often than not, right? They've been able to predict the weather with some degree uh, of accuracy. Um, and they have certain things they know when these things happen, when there are more clouds, there's probably more <laughs> rain. Is there rain every time you see a cloud? No, right? Sometimes there are clouds and no rain. But in general, more clouds, more likely to rain. And, and the same thing is true of, of the steps, right? Same thing is true with human behavior. In general, when certain things happen, other things are more, more likely to happen. People tend to talk about things, the better those things make them look. Does that a guarantee that if you use the ideas of social currency, everyone will talk about your product all the time? No, but what it isn't guarantee is that well, more people will talk about your product more often. You know, people often uh, they hear the steps and they think viral videos, right? They think, oh yeah, the goal is to make something viral, right? If if I, um, you know, if I understand these steps, I can get something to get millions of views online. And and these steps do explain why things go viral online. But what I think they're much more interesting for and much more important for is what I'll call each one reach one, right? How can we get every person who uh, listens to our show, buys our product, uses our service to tell just one more person about us. Because we bake these principles in, people will be more likely to talk, more likely to share, uh, and they'll be advocates for our products and our services and our ideas. Sick. Sounds like we've still, still got some free will there, which is fantastic. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> we, we do it. We do indeed, yes. Do have a little free will. Right. I think that makes sense for, for most people, but I'm sure that it doesn't happen to me, Joan. I'm, I'm not being influenced by these petty little things in my environment, am I? Yeah, you are. <laughs> that, that's the funniest thing about these things to me, right? We never think they're true of us. Like if we look around in the environment, we say, oh yeah, my friends, they always are talking about things that make them look good. They're always bragging. They're always you know, doing these things, but not me, right? I would, I would never do that stuff. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're wrong about ourselves, or fortunately, we're wrong about ourselves. Everyone, uh, all humans, uh, these things affect our behavior, whether we like it or not. To finish up, we always like to ask, uh, what are some of your favorite books and books that you'd most recommend? 
You know, uh, it really depends on what you're interested in, but I'll give you a couple broad favorites that I love. Uh, one is called Made to Stick. Uh, it's all about uh, why we remember certain things and not others. So I remember some stories and rumors and urban legends or ads and how we can use that to whether it's make better presentations or uh, make sure people remember our, our messages or ideas. Um, uh, another favorite uh, of mine is called Micro Motives and Macro Behaviors. Uh, it sounds technical, but it's all about how our behavior is shaped by others, which then shape our behavior in turn. It's a, an old famous book by a guy that won the Nobel Prize, uh, Thomas Schelling. Um, and then just I'll give you one more, but uh, called Diffusion of Innovations, uh, which is all about uh, why some innovations succeed and others fail, understanding aspects of people and uh, items and uh, diffusion processes and social networks that, that lead things to succeed. Again, it sounds technical, but it's a, a quite easy read and uh, has a lot of interesting implications, whether uh, business or, or personal life. Fantastic. And, uh, and what projects are you working on now and, and what do you have on the horizon? You know, so I'm working on a new book, actually. Yeah. Funny uh, funny that you asked. Uh, mm -hmm. it, uh, it, it is due early next year, but will be out the following year, all about how we can change people's minds. Uh, so it's going to be called The Catalyst, uh, and it's all about how to, how to change people's minds, not by pushing harder, but by removing the barriers to change. Usually we think we want to persuade someone, we want to get them to do something. If we just push harder, they'll take action. But a lot of times a, a more efficient, uh, effective way is to remove the barriers that are preventing them from changing. And so the book is all about how to identify those barriers and, and change anyone's mind. It sounds phenomenal. Looking forward to that. Uh, and where can, uh, Thanks. where can people find you and uh, check out your books and, and stay in the loop for, for Catalyst when it comes out? Yeah, sure. So uh, easiest place to find me is just my website. That's uh, Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Uh, um, books are available wherever books are sold. You can find me at J1 Burger uh, on Twitter. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Shona. Really enjoyed it and all the best with the new book. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Shona.